Hey, we're starting a new series today. One small step, and it's partially because, I don't know, anybody got space fever? Right, David? Thank you. Raise your hand. Very big, loud. He's the man. Like, I literally called him, sent him a text about three weeks ago. Hey, what's that bright body of light right next to the moon? I was curious. Well, Jerry, that's Jupiter, and if you look to the right, that's Saturn. It's like, this is awesome. <laughs> David's my man. Um, I don't know if you watched the news, but uh, there was a pretty big space fever event. Uh, Commander Nicole Mann, first female, first person of color uh, to command a NASA place, uh, space flight. Pretty big deal. And I'm not sure I got all that straight. In fact, I called David and we were both kind of looking it up. But that's a, that's a big deal. It's a big deal for our world, for a person of color and a female to command a NASA space mission. This, this is big, right? And also, kind of on my mind as we looked at this is, is Neil Armstrong. I don't know if you, I, I, one of the stupid rabbit holes I chased down <laughs> that I call research. Um, so Neil Armstrong had a, had a phrase, right? That's one small step for man, one giant step for mankind, which you kind of think about it, it's awful repetitive. One small step for man, giant leap for man, right? But he swears he threw an A in there, right? That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And they, they did a study, right? They actually listened to native Ohioans. I don't know if that's what they're called. Um, how they say, and, it, and it's like for a, for a. So, so they figure he stuck an A in there, right? So he's, he has good grammar. All that is absolutely pointless, right? Because we're going to alter his quote anyway for our new preaching series. Um, here's the big idea, right? When it comes to sharing the gospel, if we take one small step, they take one giant leap. Of course, we being followers of Jesus Christ on a mission from God, right? Love the Blues Brothers. Um, and they represent anyone not yet on board with God's mission, right? I like to call them that. Not yet on board. On the way, because of God's prevenient grace, he's drawing them all the time. But we got to go kind of meet them halfway. That, that's, our, that's our job. He calls them. We go and meet them. So they have so much to gain, Right? And we have so little to use, lose when we take that one small step. So here's the mission, in case anyone's confused. It's called the Great Co-Mission. Right? It's the mission of Jesus Christ. It's the mission of God that he gave to Jesus, and Jesus gave it to us. Right? So we're all co-missionaries. Here's the co-mission. This is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, the Greek sentence structure is a little funkier, but there is a kind of a commanding verb that all the other verbs are subsumed underneath, right? And the, the, the boss verb in this whole phrase is to make disciples. It's not to go, even though go is listed first, right? The whole idea behind this is to make disciples, that's what we do. So how does one go about making disciples? Well, you go. That's the first thing you got to do. Now, here we, we've got an issue in the church. We like them to show up. We don't want to go get them. It's just, the, it's just us, right? It's just the way we are. We opened the doors. We sent out invites, and nobody came. So, right, kind of. We bring them into a spirit-filled fellowship. That's what baptism is all about. And then we teach them everything that Jesus commanded them to do, right? So we'll baptize them. We'll teach them if they would just show up at church. So, and what was the greatest of these commandments that we got to teach them? Just in case you were wondering, confused, right? This is the one that's going to provide the fuel 
for this mission of ours, this co-mission of ours. Jesus replied, love the Lord God, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And if we take the Great Commission and the Great Commandment seriously, and I think Jesus did, I'm fairly certain he took it very seriously, as evidenced by the passage we're going to look at this morning, a time is coming. A time is coming. And we, we actually sing about this, and I don't know if we recognize it. Sometimes we sing about the future, and we think, well, that, that's going to be later in some place called heaven. And, and oh, Jesus is saying, all right, this can be happening now. We're in the process right now of making it happen. Right? Exchanging kingdoms, doing away with the old kingdom and bringing in the new kingdom. The new creation. The old creation is dying away, the new creation, but they're still sharing the same space, so there's a little bit of confusion with everybody, right? They're still at the same time, the old and the new. But there is a time coming, Jesus is saying, and, and that time is now, even now, when every person's life will be renewed by worshiping at a local place of worship on a Sunday, and then they'll bring that same life, which is God's life, back into their workplaces to the point. And I think this has been gaining steam since Resurrection Sunday, right? You look at the history of the world and you'll see this gaining steam. Even in the great halls of power, right, business and politics, power will one day look like the lamb throughout the world. We, we think, well, that's a theocracy. Well, yeah, whatever you want to call it, but that's the goal. That's our task is to work toward that day when every person, when you all leave and you carry the principles that you learned about in here, you go to your places of worship and you operate, you continue to, you don't switch principles on Monday morning to the business and the politic world, right? You continue to operate like the lamb. That's what our world, that, we are making our way towards that. I don't know if you watch history, you're much of a history buff, we have been improving since like the day that Jesus was resurrected. I mean, I mean, you can time it out. It's crazy how far we've come because people took one small leap, one small step. Everyone else got to take giant leaps. Before we get started, I want to make a few clarifying points about this phrase here, right? There's lots implied when taking small steps and giant leaps. First of all, nobody's crossing any kind of evangelistic finish line, right? If they find Jesus, right? We don't stop loving them when they find Jesus, right? We've got this idea that they're a target, and once we nail it, we can walk away. And that, that's really, that's, that's not, that's not what, what it's all about. Newly saved people can be incredibly messy and inconsistent, right? We know they can be beautiful, and man, they got it right out of the gate, but others, you wonder. If you were ever a youth pastor, you wonder Right? On a Wednesday night, they swear up and down. And on, I mean, they're on, in the car on the way home. I've had this happen many times at summer camps. They make the greatest professions. And that night, I'm walking by their cabin. I hear them telling a dirty joke. And I just think, what is going? And then I realize, I think I've shared this with you before. We all make these kind of decisions. But then we got to live into them. Right? We make this intellectual thing. And then we realize, whoa, that means I got to... And the Holy Spirit is going to walk you through all those things that that commitment that you made that you had no idea what you were committing to, but you just felt it, right? He's going to help you through that. He's not going to leave you and forsake you. He's going to walk you through all, all of that, right? So 
Long story short, God's sanctification process for them will depend on, in part, right, on us accepting his sanctification plan for us because we're going to play a part in their sanctification, not just in getting them to the altar, right, but, but, but getting them to the point where they're experiencing life, true life, abundant life. And when we do this, everyone wins. Everyone wins. I want to share a couple stories, my evangelism stories. Very quickly, my first that I recall, um, I was a fifth-year senior in college, and I, in order to graduate that summer and not have to come back another semester, which would have been very, very expensive, which is the way I explained it to Diane, I had to go to Europe that summer. And she, she bought it. Got to go to Europe. In Europe, I had a roommate, and in the second, we were in Paris, and he started getting just a little wild-eyed, and I, I decided to witness to him. I, I don't know. I just decided. Didn't go well. By about midnight, he decided that I was Satan. No, it started out the windows. Satan was in, in the, the pictures on the walls, and I told him I'll move the pictures. Well, they were screwed to the wall. And so by the end of the night, I was Satan, and I was not not going to go to sleep because I thought he was going to suffocate me. So that didn't go well. I don't think he was saved. That, that evangelistic effort went right down the tubes. Um, to this day, I have no idea what happened to that poor guy. Second story, very quickly. I was a volleyball coach for a long time. I was taking a team, women's team, down to L.A. in a van. And I kept thinking, right, they know I'm a, I, they know I'm a Christian, but I... I I, I don't. I never liked the idea. Just show them you're a Christian. You don't need to talk about it. Just show them. So I'm. I'm trying to. We're driving, and they're they're jabbering about silly things. And I'm looking for a way to slip God into the conversation. Just slip them. Real, yeah. And so they were asking me something about something. And I said, Well, I, I, we got to get back early because I got to teach Sunday school in the morning. The van went quiet. <laughs> you're a Sunday school teacher. It's like that wasn't in. That wasn't helpful. Um, yes, I am a Sunday school teacher. And that gave me an opportunity. I said, why do, you, why do you go to, you know, and I just explained to them. I didn't do any theology. I just said, you know, Jesus works for me, right? I've had difficulties, and he's helped me through them. And that, and that was it. It was a crazy good conversation. I have no idea if anybody was saved on that trip. Third story, my neighbor, Jacob. Love the guy. Out there, he's talking about weightlifting. And I'm thinking, I've got to introduce God into the conversation. He's got, got to slip it in, right? Just slip it into the conversation. I said, oh, you know, my wife and I, he's been talking about weightlifting. My wife and I prayed for you at your, was it you or just me? Ah, sorry. Um, I was out there talking about, I prayed for you, you know, for your competition. that You did well, and he just kind of looked at me. And I think in his, in his life, something opened up at that moment. I did, it cost me nothing. <laughs> nothing, right? There was no risk on my part. There was no, I didn't need to explain any theology, nothing. Hey, I, I prayed for you. And I could just see in his eyes this, something went on. And he, he ended up coming here one day. He hasn't been back, but a journey was started for him. I took a small step and he started a journey. I don't know where that journey, I don't know where any of those volleyball players are. I don't, I don't know where poor Jonathan is. Jay, I can't remember his name. I don't know where he is. But here's the deal. For churches and for individuals, at least part of the problem, right, there's lots of ways to avoid the task and still feel like, feel like we're making progress towards the task, right? Spiritual disciplines. Oh, well, well, I go to church, I read my Bible, and, and I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm, I'm right in the center of his will. Yeah, I, I'm not arguing with that, but I think there's more to it 
more to it than that. The reality is we're making very little progress in North America. Christianity is not growing in North America. It is in the rest of the world. North America and Europe, it's declining. We're not even holding our own. Many believe either the task is too great for mere mortals, so they just leave it up to the pastors, the priests, the, the spiritually gifted evangelists, right? We all remember taking those spiritual gifts. Whew, I'm not gifted in evangelism. I don't got to do that. Well, that's crazy. <laughs> either too great for mere mortals, so they just quiver in fear, right? Or it's flat impossible, and only God's return is going to complete the task, so we just hunker down until then. Now, here's the funny part. These spiritual disciplines, they were created by God to help us, or by men. I'm not sure who created all of them. But they were meant to help us get the word out, get the gospel, spread the gospel. That, that was the whole idea, right? Spread the good news of Jesus Christ. But like Pharisees, we tend, I'm not pointed at anybody here, it's kind of the church in general. You can decide for yourself, am I that person? I'm not that person. It's up to you. Right? We get a little bit like the Pharisees. We tend to make these spiritual disciplines like the boundary markers, these external signs, right, that we're holier than we really are. Rather than completing the task of helping Jesus redeem the world. See, I don't think Jesus believed the task was either too great. It certainly was not impossible. In our passage this morning, Jesus demonstrates that with nothing more than the spirit and the truth, right, the spirit and the truth, our co-mission will succeed. So in chapter 4, we meet the Samaritan woman at the well. You've all heard this story. I'm going to recap very quickly here. Uh, Samaritan, why did, they hate, why did the Jews hate Samaritans? Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. I don't know if you guys were this. When, when the kingdom split and became Israel and Judah, Samaria was the northern capital, Jerusalem the southern capital. Um, so that, just all by itself, doesn't make the Jews in the south very loving toward Sumerians. Um, they had a temple at Mount Gerizim, right, which was the original place of worship before King David made Jerusalem his capital. The temple got built, and that became, right, the place. But the original place was Mount Gerizim. On top of all that, um, they had intermarried with the Assyrians post-exile, right? The northern nations got carried off into exile, never returned, let ten lost tribes of, of Israel Right, but the remaining people, they sent a whole bunch of Syrians down to repopulate the area, and they intermarried, and, and so their worship and their culture became a mix, kind of a mix of Judaism and whatever Assyria brought to the table. But, it, but again, it, this is kind of overplayed. The studies show that they, there were an amazing number of similarities, amazing, and they really didn't, they weren't, they didn't hate each other all the time. They just, right, they just weren't buddy buddies all the time, um, like the Sadducees, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, right? So, another thing. So, anyway, temple at Mount Gerizim. All is fine, more or less, until a Judean ruler um, decides about 110, 120 years before Jesus, he destroys the Sumerian temple at Mount Gerizim. Just, he didn't like them. I, I tried to look into it, and uh, John just did it. Not the John that we know. He's one of the rulers of the, the Maccabean. But because of this, most Jews avoided Samaria, right? Samaria, there's Judea, Samaria, and then Galilee. And if you wanted to go to Galilee, you went around. Samaria, you didn't go through it, went around it, right? Samaria, people don't like you there. You get jumped, so whatever, All right? Trying to walk through Oakland if you're wearing a Chargers shirt. You avoid Oakland. Las Vegas, my bad. I'm so far behind. Whew-wee. 
Um, but Jesus is not afraid of going through Samaria. He's not going to go around. He's going to go walk right through. So that's the Samaritan woman now. What was she doing at the well? Verse 4 and 6 says, now he had, gone, had, to, had to go through Samaria. Whenever John says that Jesus had to do something, that's your signal that, that he's doing something that God has told him to do. This, it's not like, right, there was traffic, looked up on the Internet, uh, traffic on the Jordan River, so I'm going to go up through Galilee. Samaria, no. The Spirit said, go. I got an appointment for you. You got to go through Samaria, right? So he, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called uh, Sukkar, um, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, we all make, all the commentaries make a really big deal about this, none of which the text supports. I just want to make sure you're aware of that, right? We've got this idea that she arrived at noon. Therefore, it's the heat of the day. We don't know if it was the heat of summer. We have no idea, right? There's, there's no mention of the heat of summer whatsoever. Uh, bringing in water was not a daily one-time task that you went out in the early morning. Nowhere in Jewish scripture or tradition is early morning the time to go out and get water. It was a continuous all-day project. You were constantly going out and getting water. It wasn't a one-to... And so to be alone, that was, that was perfectly normal, perfectly normal to do a lot of these kind of things alone, Right? We just have a lot of assumptions not supported by the time. And eventually, we're going to find out, and I'm going to come to that in just a moment, when we find out that she's got five husbands, right, our minds go nuts. But I'm just going to ask you to take a step back and give this poor woman a chance. Right? But that's not the whole point of everything. I just, here on. I'm going to get to that in a moment because before that discussion happens, Jesus has the first of two other conversations. And it's really cool about these conversations. They're just natural conversations. One's about water. One's about two different locations, right, geographical locations. But then you'll notice, uh, hopefully you're going to notice this, right, there's this conversation. What does Jesus do? He, like, slips God into the conversation so casually that the person doesn't even recognize they're being witnessed to, right? He just does it so casually, just slips it in to the conversation. The very first conversation is in the next verse. Verse 7 and 8 says this. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? little side note, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. My guess is Jesus saw the woman. He knows that was his appointment. And he's thinking with 12 self-righteous Jewish men, this conversation ain't going to happen, right? This lady is not going to say boo. So my feeling, my wild guess is, guys, go away. I need to talk. And, and, you know, this is early in Jesus' ministry. They didn't have it figured out yet. They were still very self-righteous, and they probably would have just unloaded on this poor woman. Just Anyway, anyway, that, that's totally a guess, right? Jesus replies, well, a Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink of water? Jesus replied to her, answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, I want you to notice something as I've written it up there. Everything that I've highlighted, those are all verbs or cognates of the same verb. And, and throughout John, well over 40 times, these verbs that John uses, they always refer to either God the Son or God the Father's action. They're always a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful thing that's happening, right? So, so you kind of got that in the back of your head as, 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 as he's telling her this, right? Two things out of this, out of that idea. Number one, 
If you had the spirit, he's literally telling her, if you had the spirit and the truth, you would have known to ask for God, but you didn't have the truth in you because nobody's told you about it yet. Therefore, you don't have the spirit either because when you accept me, I'm going I'm to give you a gift eventually. I'm going to give you the spirit. So this poor woman, she's unarmed, unarmed. But Jesus is saying, if you had the spirit and the truth in you, you would have known to ask for God, right? If people don't have the spirit or haven't been told the truth, they don't know to ask for him. Somebody's got to tell them. Second thing, when Jesus asked her to give him a drink of water, he's demonstrating to her and all of us how she could participate in the redemption of the world. Start a conversation with somebody. If a physical need or a spiritual need reveals itself, address it. If it's physical, do it. If it's spiritual, pray for them. I, you know, wh- have a conversation. Find out where people... And that's why I'm so excited about this October 23rd thing, right? People have kind of, after COVID, we used to have a pretty good Sunday school department. COVID hit, and we all kind of forgot how to get up at 9 o'clock. I, I don't know what happened. It just, it just kind of went away. COVID's gone away. It's time to start getting back up early again. I don't know why I went off on all that. Let me just keep focus in here. Well, you all know why. (laughs) Anyway, she has several objections to Jesus's suggestions, several objections. Sir, you got nothing to draw water with and the well's deep, right? Dude, you got no rope. You got no bucket. How are you going to get, what are you, magic? And and that's literally what she says this. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Right, the same type of question as last week, right? What's the source of this bread of life that you speak of, right? And we're talking to Jesus. Are you greater than Moses? Same thing here, right? Where are you getting this living water? What's your source? Are you greater than Jacob? Right, basically, who do you think you are? They're always asking Jesus this. Who in the world do you think you are? Implying, of course, with all these questions that nobody is possibly greater than these guys and then there's you. Oh, my goodness. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, just, just like the manna, right? They ate the manna and they died. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, just like Moses and the manna, right? That's temporary, but the bread of life is permanent. Water from Jacob's well is going to leave you thirsty again, but Jesus is permanent. It's permanent. She's intrigued. She's intrigued. Not for the right reasons. We're going to find out and listen to this. The woman said to him, but sir, give me this water so I won't have to get thirsty and I don't have to keep coming back here to draw water. She's basically thinking, that was my job when we used to go camping. I hated that. I don't know why. I didn't want anyone else's job, but all day long for every meal, she would give me, my mom would give me a bucket. It was the pot roast pan. And I'd go find the water spigot wherever we were camping and, and, and haul it back, give him two more loads. Ugh. I mean, I was the water boy. I was, that's, that's what I did. And I remember thinking, this is awesome, right? Why don't we go camping where there's a spigot, Mom? I just didn't understand. All right, so again, she's intrigued, but not for right reasons, right? She's just tired of hauling water. But Jesus doesn't seem to mind. He doesn't mind. And then the passage that has so much people speculating about the character, the moral character of the woman. He told her, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. He says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five. And the man you have now is not your husband. 
And again, there's some assumptions being made. I think theologians and Bible scholars are beginning to look into some of this stuff. And I think we have bared false witness. We've, we've trashed somebody in Scripture with very little evidence. Let me just throw out a couple ideas here. She, the first assumption is she divorced the five men. Well, that, that wasn't allowed. <laughs> you couldn't start a divorce proceeding. They divorced her, more than likely, for any number of reasons. That's what made Jesus so mad, is that the Jewish people were buying into the Roman people's idea of marriage. It was a toss-away idea. Yeah, she made me mad. I'm done with her. Let me get another one. by sundown. This is the world that this woman lived in. And that she chose to be living with the current man. She could have been a concubine, a second wife. She could have been sex trafficked, waiting for a marriage dower. I mean, there's a lot of explanations that would have been. Nobody would have gone, they would have gone, ah, that makes sense. Not that it's great, not that it's morally perfect, but it's not that bad. She's like the rest of us. She's like a lot of women we all knew then and we all know now. Anyway, here's his reply. That wasn't the point of the message. What you have just said is quite true, right? He says she gave a true and faithful statement, right? She's honest. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And again, he never mentions her living arrangements again. No, you know, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Is that because Jesus doesn't care? Well, that's, that's silly. <laughs> Don't go there. She simply takes it as proof that he's a prophet, that, that that was her point of the whole. She didn't feel shame. There was no... Right? In the text, we don't see any of that, so I don't think it's right that we bring too much of that into this. And now she has initiated a second conversation. And again, watch how Jesus slips God, just slips him into the conversation so naturally, right? She has no idea. See, she thinks true worship is all about where you worship, right? Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion, you know, Jerusalem. But Jesus gently disagrees with her. Woman, and this is not derogatory. He calls his mother this. It's... it's the way you address the female sex in this culture. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Location is not the key, ma'am, woman. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, I'm not sure if Jesus or John is being sarcastic there because... Right throughout the book of John, the Jews do not worship correctly, right? They are as much in the dark as anybody else. Um, so, I, 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 again, I don't know if this is sarcasm or what. But the difference between the worshiper at Jerusalem and the worshiper at Mount Gerizim isn't about the location. It's about the knowledge behind the location, right? For whatever reason, Samaritans, right, only because maybe because they only had the Pentateuch and they didn't listen to the prophets, where Jesus obviously quotes the prophets quite often, so he might have been referring to that. Regardless, here we go. Keep reading. Verse 23 says, Yet a time is coming and has come now, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So he essentially tells the lady the end times are both coming and they are already here. We've talked a lot about that. That's the nature of the kingdom, the now but not yet. 
right? In Christ, the kingdom has been introduced, but when he returns, it will be introduced. It will be brought fully, culminating, right? So Jesus is merely suggesting, so is he merely suggesting, right, a sincere, more internally focused worship over and as opposed to an external ritualistic worship, right? Is that what Jesus is saying here? I, I don't think that's what he's driving at. I don't think because I, 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 it just doesn't work. What Jesus is saying here is that true worship is practiced by those who live by the truth as embodied by Jesus Christ. He is the truth in this entire passage. When you see the truth, think of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. True worship is loving like Jesus loved, which is only possible under the Holy Spirit's guidance and power. Now, he could have given us just power and no guidance, which would have been a disaster, right? And he could have given us guidance with no power, which is, I think, the way a lot of people operate. They know what they're supposed to do, but they don't do it. So after she explains the Messiah to Jesus, which is kind of funny, she's saying, let me tell you about this Messiah. He's like, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Well, he, he tells her, I am he. I, I'm, I'm, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> so the disciples return and they're armed with nothing but what Jesus gave her after the disciples returned and armed with nothing but what Jesus gave her, the Samaritan woman runs into town and tells everybody what had happened. And, and she's not very honest. Right? As we're going to find out, she tells them that he told her everything about her. He didn't. Right? But she's just, well, hi, he knows everything. Right, right, right. So the disciples are puzzled as always. <laughs> Meanwhile, his disciples urge him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, could somebody have brought him other food? Right? So they're, they're just, they're lost, they're confused. John's got a pattern here. You, I don't know if you recognize this. Right? Somebody will say something. Jesus will give them an, a, a cryptic answer that's usually like a spiritual uh, synonymous with what their question, and they'll go, what? And then he'll have a big old long discourse, and it'll explain the deeper meaning of the question that they asked, right? He'll address eventually the physical, what they wanted, but he's really always driving at the spiritual underneath it. So again, the disciples are confused, so Jesus explains. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food or our food, this is the way we need to say this, our food is to do the will of the Father. Right? Not just study it, not just talk about it, not just pray about it, not just have another seminar, another class about it, just do it. Nike had something there. Just do it, which implies action over contemplation, action after contemplation. Right? It's not an either or, it is both, but it can't stop at contemplation. It must issue in action. We do the will of the Father. Right? Nowhere does it say pray about, think about. It says do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is to believe the one who sent him and to obey everything that he commanded. That's, that's the will of the Father. See, a lot of times I think we end up, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, Dead Sea Christians. Right? You heard of that? Sea of Galilee is a little bit higher. It flows into the Dead Sea. Well, the Dead Sea is so low it doesn't flow out. So it just collects. It collects and it collects. And that collection slowly gets toxic. Right? It gets toxic because there's no outlet. There's no... And we Christians are kind of like Dead Sea. I've heard this idea of Dead Sea Christian. We have so much knowledge, knowledge coming in, but we don't ever let it out. So we become this toxic buildup of knowledge and self-righteousness. And, and, okay, made my point. 
We receive life when we obey, and others receive life when we obey. If you're feeling spiritually malnourished, here's my suggestion. Don't go sign up for a bunch more things at church. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is maybe that you need to rearrange your calendar a bit more around God's will and a little less around your will. Because if we're really, really honest, as we look at our calendars, as we look at our daily, weekly, a lot of it is filled with what we have decided is best for us. And for a lot of folks, I know you here on Sunday morning, a less fantastic, but in a lot of ways, God doesn't show up on the calendar anywhere else. He's got, he's got the big red letter day. Doing the will of Father not only gives the world life, but it also gives Jesus life. Listen to this. Well, it's, only, it's not only knowing and believing. It's the doing that reflects the knowing and the believing that actually gives the life. I just kind of want you to look at that for a second. It's the doing of what we believe and we know that gives life, not simply knowing and believing. Right? That needs to issue in a life that reflects that knowing and that believing. And that's what we're doing at Carmichael Middle School. Right? If they aren't coming to us, by golly, we're going to go looking for them. See, Jesus is not only confident in the Samaritan women of the world on his co-mission, he's adamant. Listen to this, verse 35. Don't you have a saying it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest now. See, the Jews divided their agricultural calendar, which actually included all 12 months. They divided it into six two-month segments. So we have four seasons, right? They had six. <laughs> I had to add them up there. Four plus two, six, right? So they had, you know, summer, winter, fall, spring, but they also had seed time and the super blazing hot heat of summertime. And I'm not sure where those two fit in there. If you're a farmer, you're, you know, you, you figured this out. But the idea is that when you planted your seed, no matter what, you had to wait at least two, if not four months to get a harvest. That's just the way it was. You had to wait. You had to wait. Jesus is saying, look, if you sow the seed, Right? you got to wait at least four months. But Jesus looked up, and this part of the world, this, this part of Galilee, Samaria, excuse me, a lot of Palestine is rocky, horrible soil, but in this part of Samaria is incredibly rich soil, lots of crops around, and you can just see him, like he, he looks out and he just sees crops as far as the eye can see, not rocky soil, right? He's, he's in Samaria, he's not in the, in the highlands up there. And he's looking, and he, and he sees all this, and he says, look, right, the fields are white and ready for the harvest, Right? They took four months to grow, but in Syria, Samaria, there's a harvest right now. A time is coming and has now come. You don't got to wait anymore. Right? You, you, people are literally waiting to hear the news. They're beginning to believe that life is impossible. That's what makes them so willing to hear the good news. They're intrigued. The world is intrigued. And we have the best-kept secret. And we need to let it out, right? They want to know about it. We need to tell them about it. And then Jesus draws on a prophecy from Amos about a time when the fields would bear so much fruit that the planter, before he was even out of the field, 
right? The crop was already, it was already flowing. Listen to this. This is verse 36. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together, right? There's no waiting. In Jewish culture, right, the time of planting was it was hard work. It was incredibly hard work, and it, it was filled with sorrow. You had no idea, right? You were literally given the last of your income. Your, your entire life saving is in the dirt. And then winter, it's cold and dark, and everything you own is in the dirt. Everything. And then harvest time. Wah! This is how I feel in summertime now that I'm up here where we actually experience winter. It's so amazing when springtime and harvest comes, all this stuff comes, comes back to life. And this was the time of incredible joy for the Jewish people. And what Jesus is saying is those, those times of sorrow are, are gone, right? You plant and immediately there's going to be a celebration because somebody is waiting for that seed. They are thirsty and they're hungry for that seed. But now... There's joy also, always when doing the will of the Father. And in this case, and in many of our cases, in the cases of other people we know, the evangelistic efforts of the disciples will be built on the work of other people, like a despised Samaritan woman. Right? And Jesus, Jesus knew this. There's another proverb he said. Right? And it true is true. It also is true. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So he tells his disciples two things. One, that they would reap a crop for which they hadn't worked. Right? At one level, he meant that his cross would bear fruit. And they wouldn't even have to do it. They just tell people about the cross. They didn't have to get up there themselves. Right? What he was about to do would bear incredible fruit. But he was also at another telling them, if when you sacrificially give, you also will bear incredible fruit, just like I'm about to do on the cross. If you sacrificially love people, you will bear fruit. But he also told his disciples that there will come a day when you would sow and others would reap. Basically, someday you're going to labor and you're going to see nothing for it. Someday you're going to sow and you'll pass from the scene before the harvest is ever reaped. Never fear, though. Don't be discouraged. The sowing is not in vain. The seed is not wasted. Other people will see the harvest, which wasn't given for you to see. Here's what that looked like a day in Samaria where Jesus was compelled to go. And I know sometimes you know the Holy Spirit is compelling you, right? You know, and you're like, uh, no. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She spoke, right? She spoke. You got to say something. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Catch that, his words. He wasn't doing the normal. He was just talking with them. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, because now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. It's all about just bringing God into the conversation. You will be surprised. Some of your conversations won't go well. <laughs> just weird things will happen. Other times, nothing will happen. You'll think, well, that was a waste. No, it's never a waste. It's never a waste. 
Your small step launched somebody into the journey of a lifetime. And you might not ever know it, but you were faithful, and God rewarded that faithfulness because you spoke, you said something. We've got to say something. We've got to say something. Bob Loon, I know, he's told me a lot of times, I've been with him when he did it, his strategy, one of his strategies is he'll go to a store and he'll chat up the cashier and inevitably they'll complain about something and he'll say, let me pray for you. People don't say no. And my guess is that tiny, tiny little step that Bob takes probably multiple times every day, he is launching journeys of a lifetime for so many people because he's not caught up and I've got to close this deal. We've got to cross the finish line. I've got to get them saved and then I can go on to the next target. That's, it's just not the way. He just loves people. He knows that they need encouragement and hope and that's what he gives them all through simple conversations. See, like the Good Samaritan, the hero of our story, the story this morning is not only a Samaritan, but she's a woman. And like Commander Nicole Mann and the Samaritan woman, right, you got to take that first small step. You got to take that first small step. If it's for you, it's for somebody else. Somebody's got to take that first small step. And more than likely, somebody took that small step for you. And you could probably, maybe you've been thinking about that person, that person that walked across the room, said something to you and changed your entire life. Right? You, you started a journey that day based on just one, just a little conversation. Just bow your heads. Father, you are so amazing. Your son did so many amazing things, and you ask us to be like him. And that is terribly frightening. But, Father, in this passage, you show us that armed with nothing but your Holy Spirit and the truth of your son. That's all we need. We don't need to be PhDs. We don't need to have theology. We we don't have to have any of that lined up, Father. Most of the people won't even know to ask those questions. They just want to know, does somebody care? And, Father, when we care, hopefully they see you, especially if we tell them. Father, give us courage to speak. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that will guide us into those right conversations and then empower us to say what needs to be said. Father, thank you you for all of this. This task isn't too great and it's not impossible. You've given us the task of redeeming this world and we're going to be about that task until you call us home. Father, thank you for this privilege. Your son's name I pray. Amen.